Thanks. If you have your Bibles, uh, you'll want to turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings 11, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 8. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we continue to learn from Solomon, some things that we ought to do, some things that we ought not to do. We pray, Father, that you would take your inspired and errant word and with it, through a character study like Solomon, challenge us and encourage us and guide us that we might know how to rightly live, how to rightly divide your word and to rightly have your spirit apply it to our lives. We ask that you would do all of this today in the name of Christ. Amen. They're going to put up a photo of Steve Wozniak, Steve Jobs. These are the two guys that founded Apple Computers, right? Well, kind of. Actually, I'd like to put up a photo from April 1st, 1976, and you'll see that it has the Steve and the late Steve, as well as Ronald Wayne. So I guess it's not a photo, it's a a signature. These are the three founders of Apple computers. You say three, I thought there were two. Well, there were three for 11 days. For the first 11 days, there were three, and the last one, Ronald, actually designed the logo, wrote the first user manual for Apple One, and did all the administrative upfront decisions. He was the designated adult in the room, gasp, over the hill, 40-year-old, in a room with two young guys, and that scared him. In an interview with the San Jose Centennial in uh, 2011 or 12, he made this statement. He said, I left Apple because I feared that my two young friends had no business sense. Besides that, the only one that had assets that were seizable was me. And if we were going to go down a road headlong and we were going to make mistakes, the one who would lose in the long run was me. Then he shared something on Facebook in 2012. He said, I wasn't against the idea of computers. In fact, I always believed they would succeed. I just didn't know how many years would go by how much it would cost, how many failures we would have first. He said, I guarantee you, if I had realized that 300 employees would be millionaires by year four, I would have stayed for four years. And then I would have left. Steve and Steve wanted to conquer the world in their way. I wanted to conquer the world in my way. And so after those 11 days, he sold his 10% interest for $800. Later, he was compensated another $1,500. Now, let's just be nasty for a moment. What if he still had his 10% interest today? 
Well, Apple is about to become the first American-born company that is pretty much American-owned, though stock is world-owned, that will pass the one trillion mark. So 10% is 100 billion. Even with inflation, most people can live on $100 billion today. It's a lot more than we pay pastors Dan and Brian combined. By the way, Ronald did become a millionaire. In 2011, he sold his copy of leaving the company, his resignation, for $1.35 million. Uh, there were only three original contracts. He had one of them. That was part of the deal for the $1.35 million. So I think he did pretty well. I mean, considering he sold his 10% interest for $800 to sell a voided contract for $1.35 million is doing pretty well. Now, I would say that Ronald did well, very well. The average American who is 60 years old, the average American household with 60-year-olds have assets of about $200,000 in America. He got $1.35 million for avoided contracts. So he did pretty well. But he didn't do as well as he could have. He could have had $100 billion he settled for 1.35 million plus 800 plus 1500. That was his sum total of being one of the three founders of Apple. He did well, but not as well as he could have. That's Solomon. Solomon did well, but not nearly as well as he should have, as he could have. God came to Solomon, and we've been looking at him for a number of months. And you remember, God came to Solomon and offered him a series of conditional promises. If you do this, then I will do that. If you honor me, if you obey me, if you serve me, I will extend your life. Solomon lived to age 60. He took the throne around age 20, maybe 22, and he served for 40 years, and then he died. He had a reasonably long life, but he did not have the extended life that he could have had had he obeyed the Lord. God promised him a throne that would be perpetual and an expanding throne. He forfeited that. You remember, his son is Rehoboam. And within a few days, maybe three or four days, Rehoboam forfeits 10 of the 12 tribes. They secede from the union because Rehoboam has his father's ill value towards people resources. And he takes advantage of people through the forced labor, the corvée, and excessive taxes, and he loses 10 of the 12 tribes. What he could have had, he forfeited because of his lifestyle. He could have had a growing, walking, abiding relationship with the Lord. He started well. 
in chapter 3, he loved God. In chapter 11, he loves his foreign wives. And by verse 6, he does evil in the sight of God. So he forfeits that abiding walk with the Lord. I expect to see Solomon in heaven. I think 2 Samuel chapter 7 lends me to believe that. But he will forfeit huge amounts of rewards that he could have had, eternal rewards, because he did not walk with the Lord. He was not faithful. He did not keep his eye on Jesus. He did not run with race with endurance, the race that was set before him. He didn't do any of that. And he faltered in at least the last 10 years of his life. Like Wayne, Solomon was blessed, but much less so than he could have been. Let's pick up in our text. I want to read from 1 Kings 11, 1 to 8. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. We saw that in chapter 3. He also had Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. The Hebrew word ahab, it's the same word used in chapter 3 for how Solomon clung to the Lord in love. Now, 30 years later, he's clinging to idolatrous women in love. His affections have moved off of God, off of the creator, and onto the creation. He had 700 wives who were his princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, or Astarte in Greek, the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, who I think is Moloch. I think the two are the same. He went after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the abomination of Moab, and for Mog, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. For those of you who have been to Israel, that means he built it on Mount Olive, just outside of the Temple Mount. That's where he built temples, first to Moloch and Ashtoreth, and then to others. And he did so for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Let's consider the life of Solomon thus far. If everyone had ever been given the Midas touch by God, that was Solomon. Solomon was 10th in line for the throne. Solomon should never have found the throne, but you remember even before his human birth, God declared that Solomon would take the throne. God had blessed his life. God had mightily blessed this man. And you remember that he follows David who expanded the borders of Israel. 
and that David had been a man of war, but Solomon was blessed by being a man of peace. For 40 years, he didn't go to war, yet the boundaries continued to expand. Tribute continued to flow in. All sorts of accolades were given to Solomon. He had the Midas touch. He is the individual in all of history who can rightly say, God gave me a name it and claim it promise. God said, name what you want and claim what you want and I will fulfill it in your life. And you remember Solomon wisely said, I need wisdom. I'm 20, 22 years old. I have this expanding kingdom. Give me wisdom to guide your people. And God said, I love it. And I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give you riches. And I'm going to give you fame. And if you obey me, I will continue to bring blessing into your life. And Solomon became a botanist. He became a naturalist. He became a poet. He became an author. He dabbled extensively in literature and the like. He has the Midas toss. He is a Renaissance man. Yet with all of this, he still disobeyed God. God said to his people, you shall not marry outside of your faith tradition because surely if you do so, your heart will be more divided and less faithful to me. God said this in verse two, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. The issue is not skin pigment. The issue is not cultural. The issue is not naturalism or one's nationality. It's none of those things. The issue is faithfulness to the Lord. I remember one of my kids who was involved in crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, relayed a conversation with me. Apparently, uh, one of my children's friends knew that his or her dad was a pastor and so offered a hypothetical. What would your dad say if you married somebody of a very different skin pigment? My words, probably not theirs. And my child said it wouldn't matter to my dad. All that matters to him is that I marry a Christ follower. But apparently the person wasn't totally satisfied and pressed a little bit further. And this son or daughter of mine responded with these words. Dad has said, it's fine if I marry somebody white, black, brown, green, or purple. All that matters is that the person believe in Jesus. And I had to laugh because I've used that purple thing for years. I don't care if the guy or gal is Barney makes no difference to me. What makes a difference is that it is a Christ follower. And that's what God said to Solomon. It's what he says to us. And Solomon had access to a lot of scripture that would have taught him that this was God's desire. Let me read from Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 4. Surely available to Solomon. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, nations more numerous and mightier than you. When the Lord gives 
you, your God, them, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. God's prohibition has absolutely nothing to do with skin pigment. It has absolutely nothing to do with nationality. It has to do with one's faith in the living God. I've shared this a number of times, even recently, but I think it's a great example. In Numbers chapter 11, Moses takes a woman from the land of Cush. That's Ethiopia, or I think even more likely, it's Sudan. In other words, he takes a wife who has much darker pigment than his light olive skin. In fact, he takes a wife from the darkest pig, pigment region of the world. And you remember that his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam, they were upset about this. They were upset that he would take a wife who didn't look like him. And so they grumbled. And you remember what the Lord said. Essentially, if you think lighter's better, I'll help you out. And God afflicted Aaron and Miriam with leprosy and would not remove the leprosy until Moses prayed on their behalf. In other words, God doesn't care about culture and one's uh, nation of origin or skin pigment. But he does care in both testaments that we be equally yoked. So 2 Corinthians 6.14 to 7.1 warns us not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever for what has fellowship with Christ and Belial. That's what scripture says. In addition, Solomon not only ignores that, but he ignores the clear teaching of one woman man. The teaching from Genesis 2 24 and 25, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two should become one flesh. The man and the woman were both naked and not ashamed. That was Solomon early on. That's Canticles or the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. If you're familiar with the account and Kirsten is going to share it next week with some ladies who go to the seminar she's going to teach, we have Solomon, before he has 700 wives and 300 concubines, we have Solomon dedicating himself to marriage with Shulamite, one woman. And it's a beautiful picture of a marriage relationship between husband and wife. That's what God intended. He should have stopped there. But we know he went on for 699 additional princesses. And I assume 300 who didn't make the crown jewels and their concubines so he has a thousand additional women and what does the text tell us it says that they turned his heart from God he now worships Ashtoreth or Ashtorte in Greek are you familiar with Ashtoreth she's a Canaanite deity a, a false goddess I would put up a picture of her. We have so many statues of her, except that they're lewd and inappropriate. Proper demeanor won't allow me to do that. 
but they're readily available. And her cohort, her consort, is Baal, the Canaanite male deity, the god of rain and thunder and lightning. And together they are a fertility cult. The idea is most individuals are farmers or they're living off the land in some way. And so they desire sun and they desire rain. And so they developed a goddess and a god who engaged in immoral acts and are encouraged to bring fertility on the land when humans engage in immoral fertile acts within the confines of their temples. And so Ashtoreth is filled with prostitutes, temple priestess prostitutes that men would engage in fertile acts with in order to encourage the goddess and the god to bring forth sun and rain so that the land might be fertile. And verse 5 says, Solomon went after Ashtoreth. I don't think we generally get this about Solomon. We think he had 700 wives, he did. 300 concubines, he did. And he made temples to false gods for his wives, he did. But verse 5 said he went after the Ashtoreth. That tells me he engaged in cultic prostitution as well. That is all a part of the makeup of Solomon. In verses 5 to 7, it says that he worshipped Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. If Milcom is Moloch, and most scholars believe that the two are one, then we know a lot about Milcom. Milcom would be a stone deity that has human-like features much larger than me, and it would have outstretched arms where you would put the child's sacrifice. And then you would light a fire at the base of Melcom or Melek, and the heat would generate up the stone, out the arms, causing the baby to squirm and fall into the fire. No wonder the text says it was an abomination, that Solomon did what was evil in the sight of of the Lord. So how are we to apply all this? Why does this matter in the 21st century? Let me offer three thoughts. First, sin is progressive. Sin is progressive. I don't think most church attenders get up in the morning and say, you know, today I want to do evil in the sight of God. I really want to outdo how much evil I did yesterday today. I want to do evil in the sight of God. That's generally not how it goes. And so we have this life of Solomon. And in chapter 3, Ahab, he loves God. And in chapter 11, he loves the foreign women. And he does evil in the sight of God. And there are 30 years in between these chapters. 30 years of slight and subtle compromises. In chapter 3, where it tells us, in verse 3, that he loves God, in verse 1, it says that he takes the Egyptian princess as his wife. And we're having a warning moment. A warning moment. And then in verses 2 and 3, it says that he set up images and went to the high places. 
the high places where idolatry is going on. Is he himself engaging in idolatry? We don't know. Perhaps not at that point, but he goes to worship the one true God in idle places and he begins to set up the idle places and another piece of compromise happens. And over a period of 30 years, all of these unchecked compromises lead this man further and further away from the one true God. We've all seen it, haven't we? We've all known individuals who are on fire, red hot, white hot for Jesus. And really authentically on fire. And then they allow, or maybe we allow, life to happen. And we take our eyes off Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we forget to run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us. And we begin to look at the things in the world and the things of God grow strangely dim. I think of a family I knew in a church I pastored. They were on fire for the Lord, authentically on fire. And they would teach Sunday school and they would teach with power and they would live with conviction and they would honor God with the first fruit of their time and their talents, their treasures, everything. And then they got in a certain friend group and their attendance became a little less Their commitment became a little less. Their drinking became a little bit more. And it's not that they ever left the church. They just didn't prioritize the church. They didn't prioritize the things of God. They didn't prioritize the Lord. And and they incrementally walked further and further and further from God. Unchecked compromise. It works that way in our lives. We start compromising on moral things. We say, you know, God's absolutes are a little bit too tough. Uh, A little bit out of touch. A little bit Victorian. Don't quite fit in with 21st century America. And we begin to compromise just a little bit. But we do so in Wisconsin with alcohol and Maybe we're wise for, for a long time. But then we become less wise. And a little buzz and a little bit too much, a little tipsy, yeah, just occasionally. And we begin to compromise. Or we see something that is enticing. We didn't mean to see the pornography. It just kind of happened. That does occur in our society. And rather than immediately rule it out of bounds, we get engaged. And more and more, and pretty soon, we're addicted. And maybe even, for some, we even act out in one step further or two. And it begins to destroy our lives. Or maybe it's the value of life on fire for the Lord just committed psalm 139 the lord is in the womb he's fashioning and creating we are fearfully and wonderfully made but the things that we read in psalm 139 become strangely dim and and we become less committed to life less committed to life at the moment of conception and we begin to listen 
to what is breathed in the air all around us and taught all around us and we begin to compromise. I don't think there's any way that Solomon 30 years earlier is thinking he's going to start making temples for 700 princesses, for false gods. I don't think he thinks that he is going to engage in cultic prostitution. I don't think he thinks that he's going to engage in child sacrifice. Little crack, and a little crack, and a little crack. And he doesn't confess, he doesn't keep short accounts, he doesn't repent. And 30 years later, how far has he moved? How far can we move away from God? Solomon never woke up and said, today I'm going to do evil in the sight of God. Nobody who goes to church does that. There's a quote, I wish it were mine, it's not, but I love this quote. We start falling into sin long before we ever fall into disgrace. Think about that. We start falling into sin long before we start falling into disgrace because we don't check and check and check and say, Lord, I need to keep short accounts. Cleanse me, forgive me, empower me to turn. The second thing that I noticed from the text is this. <laughs> Solomon is so wise. If he's the wisest man who ever lived, how did he get here? Who has not asked that question? I mean, I've thought about that since I was a little child. If the Bible says he's the wisest man who ever lived, or at least the wisest man in his day, how did he ever get here? And I think the answer is this. We confuse gifting with maturity, and we do it all the time. We confuse gifting with maturity. Wisdom is a spiritual gift. It's a spiritual gift actually available to some of us at the moment of conversion. God spiritually gifted his wisdom, but Solomon lacked maturity. Spiritual giftedness will not carry us when we take our eyes off the creator and put it on the creation. It's kind of like this. How many of us have seen a pastor, a spiritual leader fall? And we say, how could that happen? God's doing great things there. God's doing great things through that person. How did that possibly happen? And I think our problem is we've confused giftedness with maturity. People can be imminently, imminently gifted. And they can hold crowds and they can be eloquent and they can sway lots of people and they have unbelievable gifting and empowered even by God's spirit. But they lack maturity. And a tragedy is going to occur. A while back I heard of a pastor who is very, very gifted, very gifted, 
but he's begun to doubt God as Scripture talks about God. He doubts that God is sovereign, that is in control of anything God desires to be in control of. He doubts that God is omnipotent, all-powerful, or omnipresent, present everywhere, or omniscient, all-knowing. He's not preaching the God of Scripture. He's preaching an idol. If we're not preaching the God of Scripture, we're preaching, we're teaching an idol. And yet people can say, well, the church is growing, people are coming to Christ, things are happening, God must be pleased. That's an American fallacy. Jeremiah was incredibly pleasing to the Lord, and he was the weeping prophet. Even his servant really didn't follow Jeremiah. So big crowds are no evidence of God's blessing and God's approval. What is evidence is faithfulness. And so Solomon was not faithful. He was not faithful. And eventually, it collapsed. The third thing I noticed from the text is that we are called to have our closest relationship, a marriage relationship, with a believer. What happens if we're already married and we're married to an unbeliever? Well, 1 Corinthians 7 is crystal clear. You stay in your marriage. You work at your marriage. You make your spouse your best friend. You love your spouse. As you would a believer or an unbeliever, you pray for your spouse, asking God to help one take the next step in one's relationship with Jesus Christ. But for those who are not yet married, Scripture is adamant, old and new. You wait to find a person who knows the Savior and lives for the Savior like you do. Solomon did not, and they eventually turned his heart from God. One final application. I want to just skip ahead, and I want to read verse 33 of chapter 11. It says this. Because they, and I've got to ask who the they is. What pronoun does this refer? Because they have forsaken me and worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemish, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David my father did. And the question I want to ask is, who is the they? Because I see what they're doing. Do you notice the this line of sins, they're identical to Solomon's. And there's another group doing exactly what Solomon is doing. It happens to be the ten northern tribes. And there's a principle, we've said it before, we'll say it again. As the leader goes, so often go the people. As the leader goes, so often go the people. Solomon modeled idolatry modeled 
what it was to teach something less about the Lord and live less for the Lord than he ought. And this tells me that 10 of the 12 tribes followed it. As the leader goes, so go the people. I think everyone in this room is a leader in some way. If you're a parent, you're a leader. If you're a grandparent, you're a leader. If you're a supervisor at work, you're a leader. If you're out in the community and you organize anything, you're a leader. And it's not only leading in what we're organizing or the company or raising our children, but it's leading in the ways of the Lord. As the leader goes, so go the people. As Solomon went, 10 tribes followed him, and Solomon is partially responsible and culpable for leading them in a wrong direction. So as I think about the text, a few thoughts come to my mind. Don't go after anything or anyone other than what God desires. Keep short accounts with the Lord because sin is progressive. It's incremental. And if we don't keep short accounts, we are going to fall into disgrace someday. It'll be a ways down the road. But that's what happens when we don't keep short accounts. And finally, when we don't keep short accounts, we end up in idolatry. Serve God alone. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for Solomon and the life lessons that I can learn from him. And may we learn the good from Solomon and imitate it and avoid the evil from Solomon and shun it. Father, that's how we understand narrative literature, and rightly so. And Father, we pray that you would take this narrative literature and apply it to us, empower us, that we might be faithful to you for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.